It takes the effort of titans to elevate the startup ecosystem in LATAM. At Latitude, we know it's not possible to do it alone. That's why we partnered with Jeeves to help provide access to financial tools to help founders in the most critical stages of their startups. In today's episode, we have an honest conversation with four great talents, Delete from Jeeves, Antonia from AllVP, Gabe from A16Z, and John from Investo. We focus on demystifying fundraising for Latin American startups. There's a lot of good information in here, and I'm sure it'll be helpful for everyone, especially considering the outlook for 2023. My name is Brian Reckworth, Vamos Latam. So we've got some really distinguished guests here. Uh, so thank you for joining everybody. We've got hundreds of people from all over the place. I see you know, many countries represented. And we have a very distinguished group here. I will do the honors and I will do a quick intro for everybody because everybody here is a friend of mine. And uh, I've had the pleasure of, of knowing you. So we'll just do a quick intro so we can dive into the meat because I think that's why everyone's here. We want to demystify the process of fundraising and particularly in the 2003 uh, landscape. So, Antonia, great to have you. Ladies first. So good to have you on here. Great to be here, Brian. I know your your story. You know, you've been an investor. I think you were the, one of the youngest GPs, is the word I get uh, out there. Uh, at Those all tech crunch doing its things. <laughs> I like it. I do my homework and I, I know that. And so at AllBP, a great fund that's leading a lot of early stage stuff. And, you know, Kaufman Fellow, been deep in the ecosystem for a long time from Chile. And so uh, it's great to have you on here as a great investor in the region. And I'll hop to, to Gabe here at Andreessen. We've got one of the partners there, some operating experience at Oscar Health, did a little skits as a banker as well, and, uh, and you know, studied economics and, and, and computer science. So it's great to have you on, Gabe, a very active early stage investor in LATAM. Uh, and then my good friend, Jonathan, it's great to have you here, John, an early mentor at Latitude, a supporter since day one, and fantastic operator slash investor and building a new company now. So uh, incredible portfolio you have as an angel and, and now with Investo in, in, your, you know, in, in the fund that you run. And then uh, our partners at Jeets, Delete. What's up, man? How are you? Good. How's it going? So, so good to have you on, man. Um, I'm so glad we can host this and celebrate kind of our partnership together uh, to support all those, unlock a lot of value for those founders at LATAM. So your intro is second time founder, killing it with Jeeps, expanding all over the world pretty much, and, uh, and a huge focus in LATAM. And, and we're really excited about our partnership to you know, try to unlock some of that value for early stage founders. Uh, through some creative f- financing opportunities. And so thank you for, for being part of this and, and, and co-hosting. Yeah, no, we're looking forward to it and excited uh, for the partnership. I think a lot of the companies that we you know want to kind of have on the Jeeves platform overlaps very strongly with folks at Latitude. So we're very, very excited uh, for this partnership together. Cool. I'm going to kick it off with, uh, you know, I think that, Lily, why don't we just ping pong with this and we'll just hit up these investors, see what they're made of in terms of demystifying. We got it. We got it. You know, as a, a very founder-centric organization, at Latitude and Jeeves, I think we both you know, we both care a lot about founders. We want to we wanted this process that shouldn't be as complex as it is. I'll start off with the first question, uh, and then feel free to just dive in, and we'll kind of ping pong here uh, with some stuff, and then you know maybe we'll we'll take some time and uh, take some questions from the audience if, if we have some time here. But uh, let's start with you, Antonia, as a founder who has made my fair share of mistakes over the years. 
in building companies and particularly on the fundraising process. Uh, I remember I got rejected one time by an investor and I came back and like, just cut my valuation in half. And I'm like, do you think this, you know, would will you take this? Just a very inexperienced way of managing this process. I'm curious to hear from you and get your take. What are the most common mistakes that founders make with navigating the fundraising process for the first time? Great question, Brian. Thanks. So I think to start with, I think that as investors do due diligence in founders, founders should do diligence on VCs, right? I think that starting there, and as as many of you know, as serial entrepreneurs, you know, um, there are many things that VCs do wrong and you want them to know in advance. That's on one end. And then on the other end, you want to know that you are the right fit, right? You want to know when to reach each investor and make sure that you increase all the chances that you have to have that investor in your cap table if you want to have them in your cap table, right? Um, and then on another side, you know, I think the, that, in, that founders should think very carefully on their cap tables, you know, and all the deals that they accept. And sometimes it could be because they are stressed, they want to get over, you know, the fundraising process fast, the negotiation fast. And they miss certain terms. Don't just be very conscious of every term that you're accepting. Understand the consequences. Understand, you know, their implications. And I think that's also something that, uh, as VCs, we like to see. We like to see founders that understand the implications of every anything that they are um, taking on their companies. And um, and then finally, I think that it's time to reflect after the conversations from VCs, right? Usually you can have a conversation with a VC that knows very deeply that industry. Sometimes you can talk with a VC that doesn't know anything about that industry and provides feedback anyways or provides inputs anyways. So just like reflect on what you're hearing, take what makes sense and don't take what doesn't make sense, right? So those would be my my three things. <laughs> no, I love it. And one just kind of quick comment on... on uh you know, on that due diligence of the investor. One thing that I, that I think founders don't do enough is, first of all, they spend the entire pitch pitching the company and you should take advantage of the opportunity and ask them questions. Exactly. Uh, how much dry powder do you have left in your fund? Why, why is this maybe a good fit for you? And, and I think that kind of changing that dynamic is something that I think the founders, uh, first-time founders don't usually do. And they kind of just selling, selling, selling the whole time. But if you've got a 30-minute conversation uh, with a VC, you know, I think a good 15, 20 minutes of it should be letting them talk and, and you know, and, and asking questions. But so anyways, I, I love that kind of due diligence uh, perspective. I think it's great. Actually, Brian, it's when a VC starts to sell themselves that you know that you're onto something. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so Dalip, how do we, how do we get them there? So I'm actually kind of curious just from the, the investor perspective. So one of the things that um, I, I think you know, I've heard a lot is that, you know, you need to have kind of a good idea, a good team, but then I see people with good ideas and good teams also not necessarily get funded. So I'm kind of curious, again, since we're kind of demystify the process, right? Like maybe just asking the question, you know, as an investor, like how do you listen to five, 10 pitches and not get jaded uh, and think you're listening to the same? Because everyone, everyone does some form of mapping, right? Oh, it's a bank. I know new banks. Here's like my, like, you know, m mental map for that, right? So Maybe, um, Jonathan, you can start, but like, how do you listen to multiple pitches and still kind of listen to them as, you know, real pitches without just like filling in the gaps with kind of your own like information to some extent and 
you know, like getting jaded to some point. Like I've always been curious how that process happens. I think that actually there's one step before when you see a lot of very talented young people working on something, then you kind of understand that something is going on in that space. So it starts from there. You start seeing like a lot of very talented founders working on something. And then you try to understand yourself the space. So when you see a lot of founders pitching to something similar, there's always some founder that has more intel or have made more, like they know better the space than, than others. Actually, when you have the feeling that you know better the space than the founder, there's a problem. It's yeah. <laughs> early. Or also when they have trouble to explain to you in very simple words what they do, uh, then usually it's also too early. Um, and that's actually what you see. You see a lot of people pitching something too similar with not, not a big difference. And then suddenly there's one coming and, you know, with, with specific intel, with a different way of approaching the problem. And then usually it's maybe from the outside, it seems the same. But actually when you have enough intel, since you spoke to a lot of founders, you can see the difference. And I think that that's usually like a, a, a big deal. And I would say that's one. And the other is, is how did, how, like, how did the father come to you? You know, uh, it can be with true other founders. It can be through one of the investor, um, or even a cold email. Um, mm-hmm. I think like, do, do you actually respond to cold emails? I feel like every, every investor says that, but never actually responds to it. So curious. I actually, I'm very selective on the cold emails, but I will always respond to a good email if it's well written. I mean by that is if a founder reach out to me with a generic email, I will never answer it because we receive too many of them. And it means that they don't really care about talking to me. They would probably send that to 100 and, and they expect one to answer. But when, when a founder has a specific reason why they reach out to me and can explain it in a very short and concise email, I will, I will always uh, answer them. And always take the quote. Um, but it, that, in order to do a good cold email, you need to, to work on it. You need to make, you know, you need to, you need to know why it would be interesting for me to, to speak to you. Um, I think the biggest mistake is 90% of the founders are reaching to the wrong investors. Uh, mm. And that, that's, that's actually why they have more rejection than they should. Let's, let's double click on that a little bit. How do you know you're pitching the wrong investors? How do you identify the right investor for your stage sector. Like, what are what are some some tactical advice that you would advise uh, founders to do in order to prep and make sure they're not just casting out all these messages to to you know or pitching all these investors that are just not a fit at all. So, what kind of you know? There's a phrase that we like to use at Latitude, which uh, one of our mentors, Jason Ye, uh, quoted uh, Abraham Lincoln: "If you have six hours to to chop down a tree, spend the first five hours sharpening the axe." So. What kind of axe sharpening would you suggest so that you increase your conversion and your, your, the potential of getting through to, a, to an investor? And Toya mentioned it earlier. I mean, like, it's to know if, if, the, if actually this fund invests in your region, in your industry, in your stage. And I think too many founders just send it, like, they send it to a lot or as many investors they can expecting a result. Um, and if you know and you can shortlist which are the potential investors that actually will invest in what you are building in your region, in your stage, you increase your potential of having interest from the, from, from the, the investors. 
But I think that's, that's usually because the, like they think that volume will help them or they, they believe that that will create FOMO, you know, like by talking to a lot of people and then suddenly, but it's like trying to bluff a professional poker player, you know, like if you're not a professional, it's going to be really difficult. I mean, Gabriel does that for a living. He talks to a lot of, 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 of young people in, in, in Antonia. So, so it's, it's really difficult to bluff a professional investor. And to out there, I think that there are some tactical things that founders can do. And, and of course, doing the, the research and like going into the web page of the investors is kind of like the first point. But then I think something that it's very tangible and it's out there is the announcement of the investments that the funds have already made, right? So you understand by those investments, what are the stages that the investors invest? What are the sectors that they invest? And you can derive a lot of uh, conclusions from that. That's one thing. Of course, Crunchbase is another one. And then there are some funds that are less open to press releases and all of that. And many times you want those funds in your cap tables because they are very specific to or very niche investors, you know, and they understand one sector very well. And the best way to understand who are they is to ask other founders, like which investors you have in your cap table. So I think there are some tactical things that you can do in order to improve that research and take that from Crunchbase, the web page, beyond that, right? I think one last thing that I just wanted to add this is like, when, when it comes to fund racing, having structure is very, very important. And I think this is what Brian was saying with that quote, is like sharpening the axe, like practicing. But one of the things that I really think about is angel network. I think that's one of the things that is the most important across Latin America, right? I, I honestly, when I get pinged by like several people that I have in my network uh, recommending a founder, I find the signal to be very, very high. So the way that I think about deals is like signal versus noise. And like, which one should I be paying the most attention and like spending a lot of time? Because even before the meeting, when I got pinged by like three people about this person, I'm already like prepared to answer the question on the need. Like, you know, this is, this is probably going to be like a great meeting. Like I need to be uh, you know, my toes and like really, really prepared and like make sure that I impress the founder ahead of time. And one of the things I really love about Latitude is that, you know, people that really don't have a network necessarily can join the community and, and from there, like start developing and, you know, expanding the network and meeting other people and then get to angels and, you know, and, and that way. And, and I think before Latitude and before communities, it was really hard because if I'm from El Salvador, for example, so if I wanted to like, fundraise from ABC in Mexico or Brazil or the US, it would be impossible for me to connect. But like now joining this community is actually very, very important for me because I can, that gives me access to a network and the network has access to a different network. And the way that I think about it is how do I optimize the signal when it comes to a VC that I really like? So I think that that's one of the main things I want to highlight on this. Hey there, are you learning some good lessons in this episode? I hope so. The founders and angel investors we have on our fellowship programs learn things like this throughout the entire experience. In the Explore Fellowship, we help you kick off your next big idea. With the Angel Fellowship, you can expand your impact as a startup investor. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply for our fellowship programs. Now let's get back to the episode. Thanks a lot. Just going to jump in real quick and uh, make a add on to that a little bit. When I think about getting those kind of angels involved, you know, to kind of 
helped you early on, your first, you know, call it pre-seed or whatever. It's good to also map people that might have some, I put people in a couple different boxes as angels. Like one, maybe they've got deep operating experience in your sector, could be in another market, but they lend credibility because they understand your space. Um, and then another bucket, and it could be the same person, if they have access to stage financing. So kind of complementing what, what Gabe said, if they have that deep plugged in network and they can open up you know, some of those contacts, I think that's something that uh, is, is quite helpful. Um, I'm going to ask one more question back to Gabe, and then Dalib, you can uh, fire off an, another question here. Gabe, I'm curious. You know, I mean, you work at Andreessen. Obviously, it's a you know, it's a big global firm, and you know, I would love to hear from you. Besides having those signals that help you kind of identify and cut through the noise, you know, anything you can share with us? If you want to share proprietary stuff, we'll also we'd also love that. But uh, anything that you can pull back the curtain a little bit on you know, the process and you know, what's the framework look like and Andreessen a little bit, just to kind of help us understand a little bit more about it you know, as, as a founder, what is in the psychology, what is in the process and uh, what more information can you share about that when you're at the kind of decision table and you're debating different companies? Yeah, I think um, you know, to pull the curtain, we, we try to be very open about our process. Like, you know, we, we actually have like a lot of content down there on things that we're working. But um, I think when when we are looking at a company, the first thing that we analyze is called the idea maze. But this is a concept that like a general partner and recent coined. And, and basically the idea behind it is that imagine that you're about to go through a maze. Like the best founders, they know which turns to, to the treasure and which ones lead to death. So they already are familiar with the space that they're working on. But most importantly, they also understand the, the history of the industry. They know the players in the maze and they know the casualties of the past. So like when, when, when I talk to somebody, like the first thing that I'm, I, I assess is like, does this person have encyclopedic knowledge about the industry? Like, do they know what they're talking about? But like to a level that, you know, I, I recently put, put this post on LinkedIn called like the, the team, the look of the dog, which it was basically comparing how Messi looks at the ball. And he never, every time that people kicks Messi off, he's just focused on the ball and gets up and he doesn't care who, who kicked him. And I think that it's very clear to me when, when I'm talking to founders, who is that founder that has the entire vision in the ball and like, where do they want to take uh, their company? To? So I think that that's the first thing that, that, that we focus on. And then why the network is also important and the signals for us is because, you know, I operate uh, and in recent Horowitz, but like we don't have offices in Latin America. I travel a lot to the region. But why signals are, are important is because I need to understand who you are in terms of the context of the ecosystem. You know, like sometimes when, when I get pinged by like a unicorn founder about another founder, even if he's very, very young, I find that to be super impressive because the person to get that level of signal has to go through so many hurdles and in a way impress this person because nobody's going to recommend something that they don't think is exceptional, right? Especially to, to funds because it's also a reputational risk that you take. So the fact that they do that is, in a way, like a double signal for us. So we look at the DMAs, and I think the other thing that Lee mentioned that, that I want to, it's like, is this person, you know, because there's people that have amazing teams and amazing product, but actually the thing that we look the most is like, are they solving like a real problem? Is the market there for what they're solving? Because at the end of the day, you can always upgrade the team on the fly if, if the market is pulling the product out of you. And you can have an amazing team and amazing product, but if the market is not there, you, you know, you're probably not going to get anywhere. And then you're going to end up pivoting to a different solution and find a different 
opportunity. But I think those are the three main things that that like we usually tend to focus on when we're we're when we're evaluating. The other thing too is that we have and something that that a lot of founders have a hard time understanding is that we can only place one bet in the space. So for me, the opportunity cost is extremely high to take a bet at the seed investment. Like I have to be extremely sure that this is the best team and this is the best approach for us to take an investment at especially at the at the seed level because you know otherwise I can wait to the Series A or the Series B to make the investment and kind of see how that team plays out. So this is what something that Jonathan was talking about. Sometimes there's, right now I'm looking at account accounts uh, payments in Latin America. That's like a big thesis that, that I'm looking into. But like I still, you know, doing the research to understand what is the right wedge and what is the, the, the way. But if I were to place a bet on one team that got me really, really excited and then it happens that the solution comes from a different angle, my opportunity cost is like that the worst that can happen to me is picking the right category and the wrong course. But that's why we also like try to analyze a lot about like, is this the right time to invest? And are we sure that this is the leading team to do so? So, you know, just, just a couple of things to, that we look um, at. I, I think that's actually a really good point because we did our series A with A16, but we were actually in touch with them for maybe about a year before that. And one of the key things I think people forget is, uh, you know, with investors, it's always good to say something and then deliver it. And that track record, even if they're not invested in you, goes a long way. And, you know, as someone that has raised uh, a lot of capital very quickly, one of the big things was that it wasn't just like I woke up one day and, you know, someone wrote a check. It's like they had seen the A, they had seen the numbers that I sent out, then they saw the B, they saw the numbers. So it was a track record, right? And then it's like, well, he said it last time, he hit it. He said it again, he hit it. So, you know, like the risk is taken off. The de-risking process, I think, is very, very important. Uh, But I'm actually kind of curious what metrics, like just to kind of get into the tactical, looks like for a seed in a series A. I think it's very different now than it used to be uh, before. I think everyone's focused on margin, focused on profitability, but I still see a, you know, a lot of deals done that don't necessarily have that. So I'm, again, just it, it going into it, like what what are, what do you consider like market metrics? Maybe Antonio, you can start there. And also like, what do you need if you don't have that as an exception to the rules to get funded? Sure. So on our end, what we look for, and it, of course, it depends on the stage, but um, generally speaking, I think the way that we like defining it is an inflection point, right? So what's, to, what's the inflection point towards the stage that they are approaching? Understanding that in the pre-seed stage, you're just like validating the idea. So is it an insight? Is it, you know, like something that you are the unique person to build that product and solve that problem? Um, and then in the seed stage, you have some validation, but there are still certain hypotheses that you need to to validate, right? And it's, I know it frustrates founders because they usually want to hear a metric. They want to hear a specific number, but like I like to to tell it in terms of concepts, right? Because you do have certain things that change and that's why you're approaching the next stage and that's why you're requiring this next stage of capital. And it's the same thing for Series A. Right? What's the inflection point that actually makes you reach this stage that you're going to use that capital for growth? And, um, and that depends on the company. And sometimes it can be you know, four months of sustained growth. Sometimes it can be a, G- a year of sustained growth. I-, I really think it depends on the industry. It depends on the model. It depends on many, many things. But we always look for that inflection point. And it ties back to um, what Gabriel is saying about timing. 
right? So of course it ties with traction, it ties, ties with the timing of the market and, and the timing of the founders as well. I don't know if that makes sense. 100%. I think we're, in a little bit, we'll dive into some of the questions. You know, there's a lot of great questions and to leave, if you, if you have any other thoughts or things that you want to ask before we uh, dive into that. Just one thing that I want to add as well as, as you meet with investors. Uh, Dilip actually reminded me of this. It's like sometimes it also requires like building the relationship over time. Like this is like, it takes the, the, the really long view. It doesn't mean that in the first meeting that you have with an investor, a person has to get to conviction. It's actually like, it's like any other human interaction. It sometimes takes time to build a trust. And, and you know, that, that part is part of the, the diligence process, but also like approaching it from like a human perspective and building that relationship over time. Like also can remember about John, you know, when, when we met and like, I was new to my job and John was like, you know, like explaining me a lot of different things. And like now, you know, we're part of so many different initiatives, but like the human aspect is also very, very important approaching not as a transaction, but as a, you know, like a, as a relationship, because most investors do want to help the ecosystem and, you know, it's our job to build a relationship as well. Actually, I have, I have a quote on that is like, expecting to go to a meeting and, you know, getting out with a check. It's almost like going to a bar and getting out married, you know? I know we all have a friend like that, but it's not like the usual thing to do and not also the best recommendation. Like uh, Antonia said earlier, take time, take time to get to know people. It's easier also to get people to know when you don't raise, so you create a relationship. Um, and, and, and then um, when the time is, is, is the correct one, then you will have a network to who you want to pitch, who you don't want to pitch. Um, and people will receive you because you already created the relationship. Uh, I think one underrated point for a lot of founders is, you know, when you actually go to an investor and you're like, I'm actually not raising right now. They're like, wait, why? Why are you not raising? Like, like what's happening? Right. And, and that's part of the relationship building. It's like, no, I'm not looking to raise. We're good. And then you build it, you build it. And then the crescendo is ready. And then you like drop the hammers. Like, all right, we're starting. We have four weeks and here's the metrics, but you have to be prepared. And so. You know, it's, it, there is an investment on the time side, but I think it's very powerful when you're also like, I'm not raising right now. And, you know, you can go back in two months where like, now I am raising and they're like, okay, like, great. Like now I feel like I've known you for two, three months. Like, tell me more about what you're building and the metrics. 100%. Let's jump to the questions so we can start answering uh, all these questions. First question this is from Anonymous. Does it really matter how a company is incorporated when you make a decision to invest? Who wants to take that one? I think it, it really matters, actually. You know, like, and, and the reason is not what people think. It's, it's mainly because most of the in, institutional investors, they know about certain, you know, uh, laws in certain countries and they don't want to experiment, you know, of what would happen if, if they invest in a company based in Ecuador and how they would deal if something goes wrong. So don't try to reinvent the wheel. Just do the best practices. Um, today in Latin America, Cayman is, is pretty uh, a standard and, and the second one is, is still in the US um, and stick to, 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 the, to the obvious one. Yeah, I see a lot of founders trying to get cute and do like, you know, BVI or like, you know, and it's like, no, don't, no, don't, don't, you know, don't try to innovate on this. Antonio, let, I'd love to hear, hear from you and then, you know, Gabe, if you have a quick comment. Yeah, so what I was going to say is that fortunately today we have um, more tool and more accelerators that are taking the challenge of educating on that regard. So I think that Latitude Go is a great example of that. And um, that creates less tension or friction for founders 
to think through this process because it really matters, as Jan was saying. So I don't want to repeat that, but I do want to highlight Latitude Go and, and the amazing impact that it will have in the future exits that we're going to have in the region. Yeah, you were at a Bessery Corner Shop, right? And Corner Shop had a Cayman structure, which uh, was a really important you know, element to, to their exit. Yes, indeed. Um, and I just dropped a note in the, if, if there's any Brazilian founders, we started with Brazil, but hopefully expand uh, for the company formation. In fact, Andreessen's an investor in, in, in our company that uh, we got a couple investors in our company and on this call. But um, so thanks for the, thanks for the shout out, Antonia. Um, so let us know if we can help there. Let's move on to the next question. Let's see. Should I reach out to VCs that have already, that have invested already in my competitors? Do VCs invest in multiple companies doing similar? Something similar. Let's hear. I'd love to hear from, from investors on this one. It's a great question. So I think it's a great question because most of the time people think that they're competing with somebody and they're really not. Uh, so I am of the perspective of that you should not, like that shouldn't stop you, especially if it's like a VC that you found the work. Um, most of them, like, you know, for us, every time that we meet someone that might be conflicted, we let the founder know. And we actually, what we're trying to do is to understand the angle that you're coming from, because sometimes the spaces are, are very, very big. And then you can tackle, like, there, mo there must be like two, three opportunities within the space as well. So like, and especially at the seed stage, like companies pivot all the time. You know, like the, the, the main idea that you might have started, like might be something else. And, you know, what you might have thought to be your competitor at the, at the seed stage might end up being, you know, actually complementary to you. And, and I've seen that happen a lot of the time. So. I actually think that you should 100% do that. Um, there are different types of investors where they gather intelligence and like they give it back to their portfolio companies. But most of the time, like you should act on the assumption that people in the industry are not here to like. It is not because they gather until your company that the other company is gonna win. You know, it's, it's not because of that. So like I think the opportunity cost for you not to reach out to an investor because of that is is very very high. I think uh, people should definitely reach out and, and try to really understand if they're truly competitive. I would, add, I, I would like to add to that that actually it's the opposite. Like when you see a fund that actually invests in that space, if that is, they already have a conviction of that space. So the probability of investing in things similar is higher than a fund that might actually don't like that space or that in specific industry. Um, and it depends also if it's a fund like or VB or A16Z that usually take a, a higher stake in the company, they will probably not invest in a direct competitor or something that's too similar. Um, but like Gabe said, it's it's not always what you think is competitors, you know? Um, and I would say like, if you go to angel investor, earlier investor, usually they have less stake in a company um, and they will invest more in, in certain space because they actually can bring value. They, and they're obviously interested. And I would say in our case, sometimes when you're already committed to a space and since you cannot have as, as much as equity as you wish in certain companies, um, like Dilip didn't let me invest how much I wanted, um, then you end up uh, trying to invest in different players in, in that category, even if they are not like competing directly. And sometimes you, you even have to invest in, invite Delib to invest in a potential uh, competitor in the future just to be sure that, 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 that he let me invest in the other company. Just one thing to add to that um, was the, the, the way that we actually, one of the ways that we defy conflict is, 
are you fighting for the same budget, especially if it's B2B company? Are you fighting for the same budget for the decision maker within the company that you're selling in the same market? So it's like actually like a very, very narrow view of the conflict. And if you're like, let's say, a Brazilian, like we invest in a Brazilian player and then you're starting in Mexico, that's not conflict. Like that's just like one or two. Even what John said, like, even if we take higher positions, like, you know, Latin America is so big that we couldn't, you know, unless it's like default Latin day zero, like, it will be very, very hard to not look at those opportunities as well. I think that's great. I think there is a distinction between pre-seed and seed. Like you said, Gabe, like sometimes really early companies, like you don't even know what you're building yet, right? And so like, and founders usually obsess and think that they're competing with everyone. And my, my experience tells me that, you know, things are going to evolve. Who you think you're competing with today will not be you're competing with. And then sometimes, you know, a fund makes an investment and then there's a clash between, you know, and that just, that sometimes happens. Um, so I want to ask Dilipa question here. This next question is a very highly um, voted question and it's uh, from Anonymous. Um, so whoever you are, Anonymous, we, we hear you. Um, and this is a great one because Dilip, you've been very successful at fundraising. I mean, obviously you've been a successful operator that has built a lot of value for shareholders, um, but you've been successful in, in the fundraising game. When should founders start building a relationship with investors? When should they do that? When should they not yeah. do it? How to approach them? I want to hear from the founder perspective for a second. Yeah, I, I, I think you, you start. So I, I look at things as a combination of like time and uh, money, right? So in the beginning, when you're starting out, you have a lot of time. You don't have as much money. Uh, as you build a company, your time becomes very like tight uh, and you have more resources, money, right? So in the beginning, uh, you should be meeting with people when you have an idea. Because again, you want to meet in a low pressure environment where it doesn't feel like you have to get a check and they feel like they have to or have to not write you a check. And then if they didn't write you a check, now it's weird. Like It's like, do you talk to them again? Do you not? So I, I would say as soon as possible, and I would start with your network. To everybody's point here, the best intro is a warm intro, even if it's you know just a friend or a founder or now that, you know, from Latitude's network, but like something that's warm, just to be like, hey, I'm stressing this idea. Uh, I'd love to just get your thoughts on it. Um, and again, like a lot of investors get a lot of these. But investors also use this to find good founders. So it goes both ways of like, okay, what is that person working on? And like, is it something I want to keep tabs on? Uh, so we reached out before um, before we even did Y Combinator. First, uh, actually, J16 had a one contact there. They said no, we did y Y Combinator. They said no again. And then they ended up being the A. But I, I think that historical thing really, really helps. And like when we first reached, reached out, there was nothing. Uh, it was just kind of like this concept of like a global business bank. Uh, and some funds need more metrics in the beginning. Some funds don't. And I think to Jonathan's point, like even today, we have probably 60 people in the cap table and our seed investors are some of the most you know valuable people that I turn to even today and and ping them directly and be like, hey, like I have this thing. What do you think about it? So, you know, just to answer the question, I think as early as possible, uh, even if it's an idea stage and you don't have to take some like an hour of someone's time. Uh, but I think just planting that seed is very, very useful because then you get to water it later and you know that's like the fruit comes later but you have to plant the seed first and go through your network as much as possible there's nothing like a warm intro i mean i get intros now even for like seed investments and it still comes down to like what did that intro come from because i don't have any i don't have time to evaluate because i'm running a business as well but i think investors also value the fact that it comes through a warm network except for jonathan all cold emails go to jonathan because he's very open to cold emails i think there's there's, a, there's great opportunities and a, a well-crafted message Actually, all VP, I remember going back and forth with Fede, your partner at all VP on 
Like, do, do you guys actually respond to cold emails? He's like, yes, we do. And we, we think it's a well-crafted email. And I think to your point, uh, Dalip, about building a relationship, you know, I think things got a little too transactional in, in 2021 and 2020, early 2022, where it was like, oh, popping into the investor, we got all these, you know, and it was like just the FOMO machine. Listen, FOMO does work, but you need to know how to like, you know, do it. And, and the reality is, you know, I wrote a, a, an extensive post when we raised our seed round about also choosing your investor. You, you, this is a long-term relationship. Like you, you, you do not want to just work with someone just because, and you want to, you want to find out what it's like to, you know, that they're going to be partners. You want people, you know, work with people that believe in you and what you're doing. At just one point on that, when we were deciding for the AU, one thing I thought that was really useful is I asked investors to put me in touch with deals that didn't work out, uh, that were bad deals. And good investors will still get references from those deals. And if it wasn't that they did the next round, it was like, what was that relationship when the deal failed when you actually need someone, right? Because when you're booming, everybody wants to give you money. It's the other side when it's not going good, when you actually have to go you know, into the trenches, like what's the relationship? Were they reachable? Did they pick up the call? Did they try to go to bat for you? Did they not? And founders, again, like I, I, provide, I think provide the best reference, but ask your investors that directly. Like what happens when the deal goes south? Can you put me in touch with someone where that didn't work out? and have that conversation with them. And good investors have those references as well. I actually asked, asked Angela that question when I was pitching her. And, and actually, for the fun fact, we, the three of us, Brian, Dilip, and, and I, we, we, we raised from Angela. And, uh, and she answered me something very interesting. Um, she said uh, like she makes her money of the company that obviously are doing well, but her reputation on the one that doesn't. And I think I, I really enjoy that 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 say you know that quote because and and honestly I I also know some of the deals that didn't work as expected because I also invested in some of those and I know the founders and I've seen you know um, in that case Angela you know behaving the right way and I think that's to your point um, try to find out like what's happening with a partner when things are not going as expected and 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 take that into consideration because. We don't have to forget that we are doing something that's highly probable that will not go as expected, um, and 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 focus on that. I think that that's uh, something that founders should ask way more. We we don't hear that enough, you know. And and I completely agree with that phrase. It's actually a phrase that we like using in our office as well, and and we like you know making sure we are there for for the bad cases as well that we all have, right? And we want to be there. For the entrepreneurs at that time, but um, I think it's good to hear that Anderson Horowitz does that because usually we've seen U.S. funds be more practical in in that sense, you know. Very. I actually practical. think this is a good point. Give credit. It, it's actually Ben Horowitz' phrase. Just want to hear from Well, but I think one one thing also founders should do is uh, uh figure out which partner you want to work with. Like when we had our Series B, I specifically asked for a partner. Uh, again, like. This is all problems you can do sometimes, and sometimes you can. When we did our seed round, it was a you know a large party round, and I needed money to get going, and that was all I was like focused on. So like some things you can do, and some things you can't. Like figure out where you are, but I also think a big part is figuring out which partner you're aligning with, because someone that's done a lot of deals and a lot of successes might not have the same you know kind of velocity as someone that's just starting the career, et cetera, et cetera, because they're also going through their you know startup journey just as at a at a point. I think it's a great point. You're you're not choosing just a firm. You're choosing you, you, the partner is actually sometimes more important. I think more important. I yeah. agree. We yeah. yeah. focus on the partner than the firm. Yeah. And take into consideration that it's way easier to get divorced than 
you know, separate from one of your investors. So if you take that into consideration, um, choose wisely. I, I want to I wanna talk about this, this, this notion of failure and, you know, the things don't always work out and, you know, the, the trouble with that. One thing I see founders a lot of times optimizing in their communication to investors, trying to remove the, you know, the doubt of like, it's going to, it's going to work. Like, and like, instead of, instead of, you know, reducing uh, down to like, oh, there's a low probability we're going to fail. Like that is, you want to take the inverse of that. You're like, listen, there's a good, there's a good chance this thing doesn't work out. But if we get it right, we're going to transform an industry. And I think that that narrative is like first time founders are like, they're, they're really conservative in how they communicate things. And, and I think that's something that is a turnoff for investors, at least from what I've seen. Because, you know, the, the concept of a fund returner, if, if you're not familiar with that, that concept, is it's one investment pays for an entire fund. And so, you know, that, that is the, the dynamics of, of VC. So I just think that uh, on the failure side, instead of trying to minimize the risk involved, don't try to, you know, obsess about that. Uh, you know, this isn't this isn't like late stage private equity. This is venture. Uh, you should you know communicate a large vision. You want to jump in the next to leap and, and grab that next question in, in front and question is so from anonymous. How do I approach fundraising in an industry where there's little to no investment record in locally aviation, for example? Should I raise outside of LATAM, for example? So I don't know who wants to take that uh, that that specific question, but. It's actually, I think, comes back to like the question of whether you have theses specifically at firms, but um, maybe Gabe, do you want to kind of take a shot at that and we can unbroaden it? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, you know my my partner Alex Rompel has a really, really good uh, concept about this. So he calls it a two by two matrix. So he says there's like consensus, non consensus, right or wrong. So he says to make money in, in hedge funds, you actually have to be non consensus right, because otherwise you're not beating the market. But in BC, what happens is that to make money, in his opinion, and, and I, I, I had this debate with several investors, but it's like you have to be consensus right. Um, and what that means is that because in BC, like you also depend on downstream capital to be available for your investment. So it has to be, you know, I, I understand that there's a lot of founders right now, especially seen in the climate tech space, where it's actually not as developed in Latin America, and I think it should be. But one of the things is that one of the risks that the investors takes is like, it's not only if the idea good, but is someone else going to be able to put more money into this idea later on? And unfortunately, if the thesis is non-consensus in that sense, it doesn't mean that VCs are like, VCs are very open-minded. When we invest, it's like, you know, like, for example, the investment in Latitude, right? It's like a bet into the community and, and you have to be visionary just by default by being a VC investor. But sometimes there's, you know, pitches about, Things about climate tech, for example, that might not be the right environment yet, or like you don't see certain signals, and then you're worried that there's not a lot of industrial capital. So I think that when it comes to that, I think that people have to be actually a little bit more patient than than in other industries, and you have to diversify even more your network. And one thing that I've seen is that in those specific markets, you have to target investors that are specialized on that specific topic. So, for example, aviation. I'm pretty sure that there's VCs that have done a lot of aviation. There's VCs that don't own insurance, for example, which is like a very capital-intensive model. And you have to be even more targeted when it comes to those. And, and that's a way that I've seen people solve that, especially like the, the A to B type of rounds, which are the artists in, in this type of consensus. And then when things start working, then, you know, I just done an assessment of the financial model and like the margins and this actually a business behind it. 
But to get started, you have to be very specialized and even do even further research. And, you know, uh, that'll be my advice to that. I think that that's a, that's a great point. I think that there are certain industries that are very specific and it's hard to build the expertise around that industry. And, um, and, and you need to understand the deep components on it, especially when it's like too technical, like deep tech or biotech or something. So, so you may want to go out and look for external capital outside the region, but then there is the market component to it, right? Like the, the VC market is not perfect. There are certain um, companies that are ahead of, of the VC investment for so to say, and then you need to find a way to, to move around that stage, but then eventually it needs to come and then make sure there is a large enough market that VC care. Right, because it won't be a problem on only Latin, but it will be a problem on US or Europe or et cetera. Right. So I think that it's important to understand it's hard to generalize, more to say. Yep, that makes sense. Hey there. You might be thinking about how hard it is to build a venture backed company. Well, I know firsthand, and I made some mistakes along the way. We lost over a hundred million dollars in capital gains taxes because of the company formation mistake that I made. I don't want that to happen to you. That's why we built Latitude Go. We provide an optimal offshore structure for your startup, and we do it in record time. And guess what? It's five times less expensive as other options, and we use the same legal documents as the top-tier law firms. To find out more, check out latitude.com forward slash go. Now, let's get back to the episode. We got a question from a, a latituder here, Alexander. Uh, great, great to get to see you here. Thanks for your question. So, David, parentheses New Bank, set the gold standard with this culture deck. Yet, so many founders spend so little time focusing on building their own before hiring. Why is this? I can give my thoughts. So, one thing is, you know, I think culture is a living, breathing thing. Uh, I mean, we are, you know, two hundred person company now. Uh, we. Obviously, didn't have to hire people when we started. Um, and you have culture, but culture is what you do every day. So if you just have something you write in a document that you don't actually live it or it isn't part of your process or how you interview people, just kind of the values and um, things that you just resonate, I think it's a lot of hypocrisy. So the writing part, completely agree. And you should do that as the founder. And no one else can do it except for you. It's not your HR person. It's not the people team. It's you. You're the founder. Like, that's your job. Uh, but the second part is also really important, which is like, do you live your actual culture? Like, is it something that just comes out of your customer centric, but you don't respond to customer emails? You're not customer centric. Like, it doesn't matter what you actually put in writing on that paper. And then it actually starts sounding false because it's like, oh, if you don't value that, then what do you actually value? Right. And so I, I 100% agree on the first step. And I think it's really important. We did that um, at Jeeves as well. Uh, but I think the second part is also really, really important, which is like, are you living that? Is it like core to who you are? Like one of our things is being relentless, right? Like we just want to move quicker, faster, as fast as possible. Like, does that show in what you do? Like, does that, is that the reason you expand? Like, what, what is it that like you're doing that like gives that meaning? I think that second part is really, really important. Um, but yeah, I, 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 that's just kind of my uh, thought there. Could curious, Brian, on your perspective. I, I, I dropped a link in the, uh, the chat to, uh, you know, what you do is who you are. It's a book uh, by Ben Horowitz, um, you know, one of the founders of Andreessen. And I think it's the best culture book that I've read for startups. And, you know, as a second time founder, you know, you know echoing something you said, and I'll, I'll be more explicit about this, you know, values, everyone talks about values. 
And that's great, but values can sit on the wall. And if you're not living them, they don't matter. So uh, Ben in the book talks about virtues. Virtues are lived behaviors. So just echoing what Dalip said and, and kind of synthesizing that a little bit more. You know, Latitude, we, I, I've got the benefit of having built a company before where I think we had a good culture, but it was not designed. Like it was not something that we were very like intentional about. And it was just kind of like, it just happened. And so, uh, you know, Alexander, I think that uh, the reason why people don't do it, probably they just don't see the value. It's, it's something that they haven't been through the process before. Um, but when we started Latitude, we, we spent a lot of time on this. One thing that we did at Latitude was instead of defining all this stuff from the very beginning, you know, the founding team, the first kind of six, seven, eight people, which really set a lot of the DNA, we, we operated for eight months. And then we actually took inventory of the things that we cared about as, as, we, as we operated. So we kind of, you know, imagined, you know, if, if, if I were to start Latitude on Mars, you know, what are the, you know, what are the qualities that I, you know, that, you know, who would I want to take with me? And I'm like, oh, I'd take Jan because, you know, he's so customer focused. And, and then these, we basically distilled them down into a kind of a balsamic reduction sauce of qualities. And then we kind of translated that into our, our virtues and, you know, their lived behaviors. So I think that, um, you know, it's hard to have a position on this if you're just starting. I remember when I first started my, my, my first company, I literally went to my former employer that had a good culture and I like copied their, their values, you know, because I didn't know what I stood for. And so after 20 years of, you know, being in the trenches and getting beat up a bunch, now I understand what we want and what we care about. And those are you know, exuded uh, to everyone throughout the, the entire organization. And we also build in public. And so we externalize a lot of this stuff, which is a very effective way of attracting people because there's a self-selection process. So um, that's at least my take in latitude, and and we deeply care about this in our company. I would I would add one one thing um, that actually it's a paradox because the fastest you grow, the worse it is for the for the culture. So on one hand, you want to grow fast, but it's like diluting. Like you have a good wine, and you put more water inside, and then it's getting it changed the the taste and and the color and everything. Um. So on one hand, you want to grow slow to keep and have a strong culture. On the other hand, investors want you to grow fast. And obviously, everybody thinks about startup going fast. And one goes against the other. Um, especially when, because what you actually write down doesn't actually apply on the day-to-day of what you're building. Um, and we, we, we suffer from that at Green. Like it was something that really affected us as a company. Uh, growing fast and, and it was really difficult to actually create the environment that you actually, like, like what Dilip said earlier, that you actually apply uh, your culture to the day-to-day. Um, and it's really hard because it's in the small things and things that even doesn't look obvious. I love that quote, I love that page Quora, though, where you can ask a lot of questions and somebody asks like, you know, Microsoft is so big, so rich. Why don't why don't they give you know breakfast and dinner to all the, the the employees like Google? No, it makes sense. They have money; it's better. And they say because it goes against our culture. Our culture is about family, and if we push people to come work earlier and get out later, it will actually draw them away from their family. So they actually don't do it because they want people to have breakfast with the family and dinner with the family. And it's those small things that seems like super obvious, like just give food to everyone, it's going to attract more people to work. If it goes against your culture, be, be careful. 
you want to take the next one? Uh, let's see. So if a fund passed on investing were very early on my idea, what's a good way to approach them again for the next round? Um, I can give one thought here because we, we have done this. Uh, so one of the things that's just very tactical is to keep a list uh, of investors that you'd like uh, in the next round. I, every round that we've done, we have uh, one form of an investor that would do the next round. Uh, and you know they then see your growth and they can write a check for the next round. Now, if they pass around completely, I have a separate list, uh, which is investors that pass, and I send them updates uh, maybe once every six months. Now, not as much because it's different, but you know, like six months saying, hey, like here's just metrics, uh, just keeping people in touch. I used to call it friends of Jeeves and just send that out. And that would just start the floodgates for like the next round of funding. So again, it, it dilutes at some point if you do it, a lot uh, is my opinion. Some people like doing it very consistently. And I think in the beginning, that makes a lot of sense. But I think there's also the value of that gap. Uh, and then coming back in three months or six months, to be like, hey, friends of G is just pro- providing an update. And every investor will love to get your update because worst case, they just get information on the market. And like, that's great for them. So like, no one's going to say no, no to your update. Uh, but also, that's what I used to then kickstart like, the next fundraising cycle. But curious to get investor thoughts on the other side of this. Yeah, I agree, I agree on that. I think that um, the gap in between the timings creates a certain momentum when you expect that um, update every month. There is no curiosity that it's building up, right? And then the other the other thing I would add to that dimension is the fact that investors, we talk a lot, right? So when you have a company that for some reason it may not be a fit for your funds, you can be talking to an investor friend and you can mention that company and that company is going to be you know, top of mind for that investor as well, right? So it's way easier when you have that company top of mind because they have reached to you. Um, I I wouldn't say several times because the, the, that, that's an, an objective measure, right? But something that makes sense. I think that you are creating a good momentum not only for that VC to invest, but increasing the chances if that VC is well-connected. Yeah. I would just add that at the end, as, as an investor, you want to take a decision on a movie, not on a picture. So if you just go and show something, it's like watching a, one picture. And if, if you can have more reports and you can have more discussion with the founder, it's like creating your own movie of how it started, how it's going. And you can actually also, it, the, the best thing that can happen is when you talk to a founder, he tells you something and then three months later, it's done, you know? So it's not only words, it's actually they show the, 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 the capacity of execution. And that's, a beauty, that's the, the, the best you can find with a, with a founder. Um, and show them the picture. Show, show, sorry, show them the movie, not the picture. Yeah, the movie. This reminds me of uh, uh, my fundraising back in my last company. And I remember there was this one investor that was always, they were like a growth investor and they were kind of hanging around. They were, we were too early for them. But I remember I would meet with them once a year and I would literally, you know, tell them what I was going to do the next year. And I would write down what I told them. And then I would meet with them the next year and I would say, go to your notes. And why don't you read me what you, you, know, what you wrote down last time? And then I would show that with the progress. And it was like an amazingly powerful thing because I kind of, I remembered exactly what I told them we were going to do. And then I got to, you know, they had it written down and there, eventually it was just, you know, as a founder, you need to appear to be inevitable. And if you're inevitable and you're, and you're kind of, you know, doing what you say and, and uh, you know, you're, you're definitely going to be an attractive target for a founder. You're going to keep building credibility. I love that movie analogy uh, rather than a picture because it kind of unfolds the story. 
And you've got to really control that narrative as a founder. So let's take two more questions here. Um, and so we'll take Federico's question here. Um, how can we push to obtain real feedback after initial conversations with VCs and angels? In our experience, some of them keep comments to themselves. This is a great question. I would say t- times, times five in LATAM, um, from, from my experience, uh, it, it's a little hard to get it out sometimes, particularly with less sophisticated investors or angels where they don't want to hurt your feelings. Um, I think if you compare this 10 years ago, we've come a long way with the ecosystem in Latin America. Uh, so I think that it's, um, you know, but, but uh, I have my, I will hold my thoughts for a second on this and, and uh, hold my res- resist the, the temptation. Uh, would love to hear what are your general practices, uh, Antonia, John, Gabe, like, you know, what, what, how, how candid are you with founders? Are, are, you know, and, and what, uh, you know, how do those conversations go and how can founders get really candid feedback? Yeah, I think that that's, that's a great question. And, and that's, that's a question that many, many founders should be asking themselves, right? How, do, how can you get more insights from VCs? In OVP, we try to be as candid as we can. Understanding that there is a delicate line between, you know, us knowing everything about an industry and explaining just what's our take in it, right? That's why we like talking about conviction levels, you know, in a certain industry. And that's why we like explaining that it's our opinion and our way of seeing things instead of saying that it's a fact in the industry. I think that you always need to appreciate the fact that founders see something in that space or something in that problem and probably you know it can it can be right it can be not right doesn't matter but it's it's their take on it so i think also vc needs to have um that line very conscious and we try to do that um i like when founders ask i think that there are many founders that ask directly like can you provide more feedback and um and they need to be open to listening sometimes you know founders just don't want to cheer and that means that we rather not say completely like all the different feedbacks that we may have. So we try to provide a certain level of insight, but usually it's founders that do the double click in asking, you know, can you provide more free feedback on this? And that's when we understand, oh, they are open to hearing what we think about this, right? Just one thought on that. I think just as you take the feedback, it doesn't mean you have to change your entire company because I think a lot of people take the feedback as like, that means I'm going to get funded. Like it's at the end of the day, it's your company. Like sink or swim with yours. Like you make that call. Uh, and I've, I've been on both sides of this where they say something, you do it completely different and they're like, wow, you're such a you know visionary. I'm like, you literally told me not to do that. So take it as a grain of salt. It's, that's their job. You have your own job to do and that's your decision to make. I agree with the leap, and I would say that ninety percent, and sorry, Andrea, but ninety percent in give of what an investor would tell you is is just an excuse. You know, like investor don't spend that much time of telling you why, and obviously they they probably also mistaken. You know, because like the the thing about VC is you just need to be right one once a few times, and and you make the number work. You know, like it's it's about the outliner. Like Brian said, and it's very tough to give straight like a really good reason. Um, and most of the time, founders will actually take it badly. So it's a very difficult position because if you want to be honest with the founder, they will take it badly. Um, and at the end, most of the time, it's it's just an excuse to say no. 
I think if you spend really time and you ask very, and you, and you show that you will not take it the wrong way, you can actually get some really good feedback from investor. But you need to show that you are actually truly and sincerely interested in the opinion. And some of that feedback can actually be amazing. But that's, I would say, probably in my, in my experience, 5% of the founders that are actually really interested in my opinion, not at 95%, they just, you know, want an answer yes or no. And no matter what you say, they will, they will continue. So if you can show investors that you really want their opinion, you will get it. Let me, let me double click on this one before Gabe jumps in on the angel side. Having done, you know, close to 100 investments as an angel, I, I think that this is one of those opportunities. Someone posted this, that there's a book that mentions this. A lot of this is common knowledge and common wisdom about asking for advice. You know, if you, if you want money, you know, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. Like, you know, actually it's in, I wrote that in my book, but it's not my original thought. But, um, so, you know, the, the truth there is that like you're building a relationship with angels. Like that, that's such a fundamental thing. And I know that when I'm talking to a, you know, a founder and they're like engaging me in the thought process, like all of a sudden I'm giving feedback ideas. Of course, I don't know their business as well as they do, but as soon as I shared my thoughts, all of a sudden it becomes kind of my idea too. And it's like, I might be investing in, in what I, you know, an opportunity I see. Of course, you don't want to like manipulate and be like, oh yeah, and like change the focus just because the investor is Delish said. But the, the reality is that like, you know, to get people excited about it, like, especially an angel, like, I think people treat it too transactional. Like you said, John, it's like a yes or a no. And like, you know, it's building, you know, kind of that, that's having a thought partner and treating the relationship with, a, with an angel as, as a thought partner is way more, it's, a, it's literally 10 times more effective. Uh, and you're also building a relationship. And the second thing I'll say, and this applies to funds, is uh, don't, don't get defensive. Like, I, I know that you're betting your life on this and you're, and you're, so, you're so adamant about the, what you're building, but like, literally stay curious. Oh, really? Why do you think uh, that that's you know, going to be difficult, the go-to-market strategy that we've lined out? Because... The more questions you ask, the more you can dissect the thinking of the investor, and then you can have be armed with ways to kind of present differently. You may just be not communicating clearly, and and then you're able to kind of understand the psychology and the thought process. And then for the next pitch, you, you know, a lot of times the, the the concerns are across the board from different investors, and then you can approach it in a different way. Yeah, I think um, just to add on that front. Um... Yeah, I think the leaf said it, and I really like this. Like, even the best investor is not God. So it's just like an opinion of 7 billion opinions in the world. That like he might have a, like access to like information and like have a view of how the market will evolve. But like uh, John also said it, like most often investors are wrong, they're right. You know, and like when, when we do our past notes, that's something that we highlight over time. We passed on companies like Airbnb, Open Door, like the first time around that we saw them. And then even even Jeeves, for example. So like most often we 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 are like um like investors are it's just an opinion. And the second that I wanted to highlight on this, and this is the spicy take, is is also cultural a lot. Like I see that I'll give you an example of what the bar is for me. I think Colombian founders are very good at taking feedback. And with them, I'm very, very direct because they have this mentality of like, okay, just give it to me, like I can handle the bullshit, like go for it. 
Um, other countries, I would say, like including El Salvador, like we have this mentality where it's very hard for us to say no. So we're like, oh yeah, yeah, like you know, like it's very hard some cultures to say no, and some cultures, like you know, I'll, I'll say this uh, in Brazil, for example, people are very indirect. Like if you're direct with them, they think you're being aggressive. So like it also depends on on, on how open can people be and on, on the discussion and on, on the feedback. So like sometimes you you're being direct and then, and then you offend people and therefore you learn and you're like okay I don't want to be offend you next time. So I think there's some cultural nuances in, in Latin America depending on the country. Well, thank you for the the spicy say, John. Before where we're going to wrap up here because we were going a little bit. Last comments. Go ahead. If anyone wants to make any last jump in, um, sometimes investor will actually provoke you a little bit to see how you react. Because at the end, you need to be able to work with someone and, and to see how they take the, 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 the feedback. It's really hard to work with someone that you cannot work with or that would take everything personally. Um, so bear into consideration that it's part of the process. Um, you're, you're being like tested. <laughs> Antonio, estás en México donde el picante es, es, uh, es king. So any 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 other any spicy thing to add this with or any any reflections or comments to, just to bring it home here? Also, I think that the last conversation that we've been having the last five minutes it's a conversation that um, founders should stay with, right? They they treat VCs or they think VCs know everything. We don't, and um, most of the times we're wrong, right? It, and it's it's just the math of it. So take things with a grain of salt. I think it was. Dilip or, or, or Gabe that said it, um, take with a grain of salt, take your own conclusions from the conversations and think for yourself on that feedback and what everyone is saying. You're going to receive inputs and suggestions from everyone. Everyone thinks that they have an opinion and they all think that they have it right. So make your own. Um, I think that's a great way of, of ending you know, this great conversation. I, I love it. And uh, just to, there's a great comment in the, from Gabriel Zamora about this book. It's called The Culture Map. And actually, it, Gabe, it highlights a lot of these cultural differences. In fact, I, re I read that book. Um, it's, it's super useful. It has like the whole spectrum of like directness and how to give feedback. And, and it has like all the cultures. And it's actually a funny story. When I, when I was in, uh, you know, when I was in first moved to Latin America, um, you know, my, my experience has been, and there's a, another book called, uh, it's by Felipe Corsini, and it's about uh, marketing to, to Latin American, U.S. Latinos, actually. And there's a concept in the book that talks about the directness of you know, communication. And if you think about things, of course, I'm generalizing, but when you ask a question, think of like a, in the U.S., like an upright triangle. Oh, what's your favorite color? My favorite color is green. And then you give a, a description of a rationale. In Latin America, one of the challenges that I found being an American is that depending on you know, the culture, you may ask a question and then, and it's, it's actually very thoughtful. You give the rationale first of why you think what you think, and then you come to the conclusion at the end. So it's, it's a very rational way to do it. But uh, for, for an American, it feels like you're avoiding the question. And so these are some in interesting cultural elements that if you're pitching a US investor, you might want to be just more direct. Um, we could probably host a whole session on culture. Uh, Latin America is such an interesting uh, you know, region with, you know, uh, so, but, but I want to wrap up here and first of all, thank our uh, distinguished guests, uh, investors, um, you know, founders, supporters, Antonia at AllVP, Gabe at, at Andreessen, and Jonathan at, at Investo. Uh, I think um, 
I speak for, for Dalib, uh, my co-host here, and I, I want to hear from him because, you know, Jeeves is doing some amazing work uh, for founders and, you know, supporting founders. And so I think uh, if, you're, if you're not a, a Jeeves customer already, you should definitely uh, check it out. They've got, you know, credit cards. I, you know, I'm a customer. Um, you know, the, the, the virtual card is, is, a, is a game changer. And, you know, you've got a handful of other products. Um, and so, uh, you know, thank you, Delete, for, for co-hosting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we're looking forward to the partnership. And uh, yeah, feel free to kind of check us out. And we'll have some specials that we're kind of going to have for Latitude companies as well. But uh, you can drop a note to Greg at tryjeeves.com or just go to the website or drop me a note. Uh, but yeah, we are looking forward to building out this partnership. And I'm very excited about the region. We have expanded to many countries, but our first and every new product we test out still like starts in Mexico. So, you know, it's it has that engine that we see. Uh, in a lot of countries outside. So it's, it's just such a core, core part of, I think, the story of uh, the next fight. Awesome. We're excited to, you know, have, uh, be, you know, have you as partners at Thomas Latam Summit in, in September uh, 28th in, in Brazil, 29th. Uh, we'll be announcing more details shortly on that, uh, where you guys are founding sponsors and, and great supporters of that. Um, and of course, if you're a founder in Brazil, uh, if you're still hanging in there, uh, I see Julio, uh, one of our customers actually, uh, that who in Latitude Go just said he's looking for for to learn more about uh, Jeeves. He's a, he's a Latitude Go customer. So uh, if you're Brazilian and you're in, and you're looking for uh, company formation so that you can take some money from uh, you know any of these three investors, they'd be happy to you know invest in that structure because it's the preferred structure. We would love to help you out. So just reach out to me on Twitter or uh, you know our team uh, at go.latitude.com and we're here to help. So thanks so much, everybody. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Obrigado. Vamos Latam. Obrigado. Vamos Latam. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.